Hebrews chapter 4. Our intention tonight is to make it all the way through verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 4. And in this section what we see is an appeal to the audience that, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to not to make the same mistake that the wilderness generation made. We began talking about the wilderness generation on Sunday night. What he's going to say is he's going to say that the wilderness generation, those who followed after Moses, did not enter into God's rest. And the writer refers to Psalm 95 uh, two more times in this verse. He, 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 you're going to see that, that little Psalm 95, um, 11 in verse 3. You're going to see it in, in, in verse, uh, verse 5. And, and, you're, and you're also uh, uh, going to see a, a reference to it as well um, in, verse, in verse 1. And so that's the theme. Now, by the way, he's already mentioned that rest in chapter 3, verse 11. So he's hammering this home. He's hammering this home, this idea of the rest of God. The theme of this whole section is, is the rest of God. And a summary of this section can be found in verse 11. Look at verse 11 in, in chapter 4. This summarizes this section. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. That is a summary of everything that we're, we're going to look at tonight. So let's begin with, with verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So we see, first of all, that the promising of entering into God's rest still stands. It hasn't expired because the Jewish people lost the land of Canaan. Now, to the Jewish people, the land of rest was the promised land. When they thought of the land of rest, that's what they thought of. It, it was Canaan. But it was clear that the Jewish people... Uh, didn't possess that land any longer. So when he's writing to these Jewish people and he starts talking about the promised land, the land of rest, they know without a doubt, hey, we're no longer in that land of Canaan. Rome has taken us over. And so some might have thought, well, that promise no longer stands. Now the context here is this. The entire generation that died in the wilderness did not enter that rest. We talked about that on Sunday night. That whole generation that followed Moses from Egypt, they didn't enter into that rest. Now, the promised land was a shadow, a type of the rest that we ultimately find in Jesus. We're going to talk about that a lot, a lot tonight as well. So what the writer is saying here when he says, you know, don't fail to enter into this rest, he's, he's saying this, don't miss salvation in Christ. He's saying that the door is open. The opportunity is there. But once you die, that promise is no longer available. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, which is while we're alive, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And that word fear there speaks of a soberness concerning our salvation. Um, most of us probably know someone who, who died lost. And uh, their death should encourage us to give our lives to Christ. And, and that's what he's saying here. He's saying, think about all these people who died lost. Think about all this wilderness generation who missed it. Who didn't enter into God's rest. 
That's why the writer is using the example of people who died in the wilderness because in the book of Hebrews, it's hard for us to believe, but but in the book of Hebrews, he says here that that whole generation that died in the wilderness missed heaven. And they missed heaven, and he's going to go on to say, because they were unbelieving. We saw that this, this past week. And he's saying, don't be like them because the rest they wanted to enter into in the promised land was just a picture, a shadow of the ultimate rest that we find in Christ. And he's saying to these people, don't fail to enter the rest of Christ. Now look at verse 2. He says, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Now, their good news, their gospel, your your version may say, was the promise of the land of Canaan. God told them, He said, "Um, I'm going to give you this land in the book of Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. He said, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. But a lot of them refused to enter that land simply because they were afraid. Now, our good news is what? Our good news is the gospel. That Jesus has come into the world, He has died for our sins, and He has risen. What are we to do? We are to repent, and now we are to trust Christ. Now, now why did the wilderness generation fail to enter into their rest? Look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 19, and it tells you. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They didn't believe God. And then then again, when you look at verse 2, the idea there is they didn't benefit from this message that, that God gave them. And y'all, it's the same with us. God has given us a message. God has made promises to us, but we have to act on faith to benefit from those promises. We, we don't just enter into those promises because perhaps we were born into a Christian nation or born into a Christian home. There's an entering in that you and I have to do, just like those Jewish people could not look back at their heritage and say, well, I'm Jewish. Yeah, I'm going to the promised land. No, it was their lack of faith that kept him out of it. Their lack of repentance. And it's the same way with you and I. And so he's using this. By the way, it's, it's a genius tactic to, to preach this to Jewish people because they would understand this so well. Now look at verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Now, so we see here, who is it that enters into the rest of God? Well, those those who believe. For we who have believed enter that rest. And so, so the true Christians, they were the ones who were experiencing the, the rest of God. And he quotes 90, Psalm 95.11 to prove, prove his point in a very interesting way. He says this, you know, he says, you know, if those who do not believe did not enter God's rest... It then follows that those who have believed have entered God's rest. That's the point he's making. If those who did not believe did not enter God's rest, it follows that those who did believe did enter God's rest. Notice again at the end of of verse 3. We see there that God has done everything for us to enter in that rest. Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's saying you didn't enter this rest even though God did everything for you to enter into this rest. You know, salvation, Old and New Testament, has always been available. In fact, the Bible says in Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus is the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And so those Jewish people who lived before Christ, they had a faith in a coming Messiah, and that faith is what saved them. And those who lived after Christ came had a faith in a Messiah who had already come. 
But it was a faith in the same Messiah that saved them. So we see here that this plan of salvation in Christ is an eternal plan. And so we can't blame God, whether we're Old Testament or New Testament, if we don't enter into the rest of God, because God has already completed the work of salvation. Now I want to back up a little, a little bit and define that rest again, because I want to make sure I'm not losing any, in anybody here. For believers... This, this rest is found in Jesus. What did Jesus say in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verses 28 and 29? He says, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you yourself and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly heart, and you shall find what for your souls? Rest. Rest for your souls. And so we see that, that this salvation is, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. This rest is found in the Lord Jesus. Now look at verse 4 and 5. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter into my rest. So in verses 4 and 5 we see two Old Testament verses are, are quoted. Uh, Genesis 2.2 and Psalm 95.11. And man, like I said, he loves Psalm 95.11. You see how many times he's already, he's already quoted that, that verse. Well, what does Genesis 2.2 say? Well, Genesis 2.2 says that God rested after creation, doesn't it? You remember those days of creation, and then on the seventh day, we know that God rested. Now, why did God rest? If you go and look at the context, God rested because everything was good. He saw that everything was good. Everything was complete. Everything was finished. In other words, there was no way to improve it. It was perfect. It was perfection. God looked at what He created, and He was satisfied with it, and therefore He rested. Now that means that God has not created anything new since then. Since creation, y'all, God has not created anything new. And you may say, well, what about new people? Well, we wouldn't really consider that creation in the same way that, that we see in Genesis because God set forth a pattern and a way in which human beings would procreate. And so it's a little bit different than what you see in the beginning when, when everything comes from nothing. Everything comes from nothing. God hasn't done that again. Does God continue to work? He does continue to work. John 5, 17 says, My Father always works. God is at work in this world. But He does not continue to create. He has rested from His creating. Now, Psalm 95, 11 says, Many in the wilderness generation didn't enter the rest of God. Which implies what? It implies that humans can enter the rest of God. Him saying they didn't implies they could have. So God is a God who has rested and He has made a way for those who belong to Him to enter into that rest. Which, by the way, is very good news. It's very good news. And so it's so interesting that, that He's taken this idea of rest all the way back to creation. Because what He's doing is He's including Old Testament saints in this and He's including New Testament saints in this. He's bringing all this together for the body of Christ. So bottom line, verses 4 and 5 teach there is a rest that God enjoys and human beings can enter into that rest that God enjoys. Now look at verse 6. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. So we see the rest is available. It's still open. People can enter it. God hasn't slammed the door of salvation. Now, did many fail to enter it? Yes, but they didn't fail to enter it because it wasn't available. It was their disobedience, he says, that cut them off from that rest. Again, verse 7, as he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now we know that, that David lived many, many years after the wilderness generation. If you know your Bible, you know that, that, that he's, he's been talking about uh, the wilderness generation. Then he goes back to the book of Genesis. Now he goes all the way back uh, uh, past the wilderness generation to when the kings ruled. And then he talks about David. And, and he said here, he's quoting what, what David said. Today, if you hear his voice, do, do not harden uh, your hearts. Now... It's interesting here that you see that, that salvation is possible, but people have to listen to the voice of God. They have to hear. They have to hear this. Now, what is the day of salvation? What well, it's, it's today. So he's warning this present generation, don't make the same mistake of that wilderness generation. You need to enter into the rest of God, and you need to do it today. Now look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. When you take the name Joshua in Hebrew and you translate that into Greek, it's the word Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. So you may have a translation of the Bible that actually says Jesus here. And if you do, that, that's, the, that's the reason why. I just want to clarify that for some of you who may have, have a version that, that says that. So it says here, you know, if, if, if uh, in the Greek translation it says, if Jesus had given them rest, and that's because that's the equivalent. Now, I think that he's probably, the writer's probably capitalizing on the play of words here. The fact that Joshua and Jesus, their names are, are, are the same. But the Joshua in the, in the Old Testament could not lead his people into rest. That's what he's saying here. He led them into the promised land. But if you know that story, it was a very temporary rest because eventually they were overtaken by their enemies, weren't they? They were fighting here, fighting there. They had a little bit of peace, a little bit of prosperity. But for the most part, it was up and down. It was wars. And then they lost everything to the Syrians, lost everything to the Babylonians, eventually lost everything to the Romans as well. But the proof that Joshua didn't lead the Jewish people into rest is the verse the writer keeps quoting from Psalm 95. That was said so much later. God promised rest for the people years after they failed to enter the promised land. You say, why is that important? It's important because it shows you ultimately that promise to enter into the rest was not talking about Canaan. It was talking about something great. That's why years and years after the whole Joshua thing, there's still a promise there. By entering into the rest of God. And he's saying here that Joshua can't give you rest. Only Jesus can give you the rest that God promised. Now Joshua accomplished a lot. And he was quite a man. But Joshua failed. 
Jesus has come to be a greater Joshua, to lead his people, not into a temporary rest, but to lead his people into an eternal, enduring rest forever and ever. Which could be another way, you know, he's already said, Jesus is greater than the angels. He's already said, Jesus is greater than Moses. And now he's saying, Jesus is greater than Joshua. Because Joshua could not lead you into the rest, but Jesus has come to ultimately lead you into eternal rest. Verse 9, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Just a summary point, all right there. Just, Just a summary point. The people of God are still looking. They're looking for a rest. And where is that rest available? In Christ. You see that phrase, Sabbath rest? They're looking for a Sabbath rest. That would be very important to the Jewish people uh, because resting on the Sabbath day was one of the most important things to the Hebrews. But this shows us something more as New Testament believers concerning the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a shadow that pointed to the ultimate rest that we find in Jesus Christ. It was a type. That's why we no longer have to keep Sabbath laws because the Sabbath itself is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Joshua was a type of Jesus, he was was symbolic of this greater one who would lead you into rest. The Sabbath was symbolic of an ultimate rest in heaven that the Lord would lead us into and and in salvation. Now look at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work, works as God did from his. God's rest, what is that? That's the rest you have in Jesus if you're saved. That's the rest you have in Jesus if you're saved. The Christian has rested in their works. Now what does that mean? Let's, let's try to make this practical for a little bit now. What does that mean? He has rested, the Christian has rested in, in his works. Well, first of all, we have found rest in Christ. We're no longer looking for it. We're no longer looking for salvation. We're no longer trying to find it, trying to search it out. We've already found it, y'all. And we have found it in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're not trying to earn our salvation through works. We're not out there saying, well, if I do this, and I do this, and I do this, then maybe God will save me. And then thirdly, it means that that we have the peace of God because we have been justified by faith in Christ. Now we have entered into this wonderful rest. When you think about the Jewish faith, uh, specifically in, in the days of Jesus, when Jesus came, there was anything but rest in Judaism, right? There was no rest at all. It was a constant work, a constant hope of maybe God will approve of me. Making sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Jesus said that it was like the Pharisees had loaded the people down with heavy burdens that they were not able to bear anymore. They were trying and trying and trying. But for the Christian, he's saying that, that, that the work of our salvation has already been accomplished. It's been accomplished on the cross. And, and we just enter into it. And we enter into it by repentance and faith. Now, the rest is both, number one, present, which means we're not trying to accomplish our salvation. We are saved. Amen? We are. Listen, if you are trying to be saved, your life is going to stink. 
It's going to be so hard. Because I will promise you, if you could save yourself, Jesus would not have done what he did on the cross. Amen. If you could do it, Jesus wouldn't have went through what he went through on Calvary. And so as Christians, it's, it's present in, in that, that we aren't trying to accomplish our salvation. That's when you pray. That's why when you pray, you can say, God, thank you for saving me. Amen. You can say that. Why? Because you're saved. And so when we think about that rest, it's, it's a present rest. But it's also a future rest. You say, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is the Bible says that we're saved, but then it says also we're being saved. And what it means by that is our salvation is not complete. Not complete doesn't mean that our salvation is not secure. What it means is there is more to your salvation coming in the future than you are experiencing now. And that's for every Christian. By the way, that's for every person who's even in heaven right now. Because the Scripture teaches that every believer from every age will be glorified on the same day. Which is something that's always been amazing to me and a blessing. That God saves this ultimate day, this day of glorification when those who are in the ground come up and, and those who are alive on the earth come up and we all receive our glorified bodies simultaneously. That's when the end comes. And we look forward to that day. And we look forward to entering in this perfect rest where we don't have to deal with the flesh anymore. We don't have to deal with the world anymore. We don't have to deal with the devil anymore. So in that sense, it's a future rest. But when I say future rest, don't think that means that you don't possess that rest. You possess it now. But you're headed to a day when all of the turmoil on this earth, all of the pain in your body, all of the fighting against the world, the flesh and the devil that you have to do every day, you'll be able to completely rest for all eternity from all of that stuff. And by the way, what a wonderful promise that is. Amen. Now, for those of you who don't fight the devil and the world and the flesh every day, that ain't much of a promise to you. But if you fight the world, the flesh and the devil every day, you look forward to that. Amen. And so that rest is a present rest. We're not trying to save ourselves because Christ has saved us, but it's a future rest and that when it's complete, we'll experience the fullness of it. Now look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now at first glance, you might look at that and you might say, well, this seems to contradict everything he just said when you look at that word strive because strive doesn't sound like rest. So what does he mean here? This is what he means. He means be diligent in your salvation. Make sure you're saved. And, and, he, and he makes an, a reference there to the wilderness generation. If you had asked the wilderness generation, if you had all those fellas and all those ladies together who were groaning and complaining and blaming God and mad with Moses and, and, and building uh, false gods that they could bow down to, if you could ask them, if you could say, hey, are y'all saved? They said, yeah. They said, we're on our way to the promised land. We are absolutely 100% saved. And so this writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be like those guys who thought they were going to the promised land, who thought they were going to heaven, but they didn't make it. Why? Because their faith was dead. Their faith did not result in, in righteous living. And so what he's saying in that verse is don't be deceived. 
like that wilderness generation was, their ongoing disobedience was the proof that the faith they had was a dead faith that was void of anything that would save them at all. And that's an important thing for us to remember, to be diligent in our salvation, to make sure that we're saved, to, to know for a certain, to look at ourselves, as Paul said in Corinthians, to examine ourselves, to see if we are in the faith. Am I serious about my relationship with Christ? Is this salvation real? I don't want to be like the wilderness generation who, who fell in the wilderness and died and never made it to the promised land. Now look at verse 12. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now we know what the Word of God is. That's the Bible. And he's saying here, the preached Word of God pierces deep into us. And he says it's so sharp that it can penetrate those deep places, those places that are hard to get. Look at how the Word of God is described here as living, first of all. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of God will endure forever. The Word of God will endure for all generations into eternity. The Word of God is living, y'all. It is alive. Then he says that the Word of God is active. What does that mean? It means it accomplishes what it sets out to do. It accomplishes what it sets out to do. He says it's sharper than a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword cut both ways, coming and going. That's what a two-edged sword was. And so the idea here is the Word is an offensive weapon. The Word of God is what we use to destroy error, what we use to fight against temptation, what we use to fight against Satan himself. When you see Jesus in, in a battle with Satan in the wilderness, what is He using every time? He's using the Word of God. He says, it is written. It is written. It is written. He's wielding the sword of the Spirit to show you and I how to use it there. The, the, the Bible does more damage to this evil world system than anything else does. And that's why it's so important, y'all, in our culture. We're shrinking back away from the Bible. We're saying, well, if we say the Bible says we're going to lose people. I want to tell y'all something. We need to be saying, shouting to this current generation that we live in, thus saith the Lord. The Bible says, because the Word of God is what's powerful. If we're to ever think that our own arguments or our own ideas are somehow stronger than the Word of God, we're fooling ourselves. So never be ashamed when you're confronted with error. Never be ashamed when you're at your job or you're somewhere with a friend talking and, and something terribly ungodly and, and terribly anti-Christ comes out. Never be ashamed to pull out the Word of God and say, the Bible says this. Because that's your weapon. It is a two-edged sword, and it will accomplish what God has set forth for it to do. He said there that it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know that word discern there? That's an interesting word in the Greek. It's where we get our English word critic from. Critic. Um, the Bible is our critic. It tells us what's wrong with ourselves so we can fix it. There are some people who seem to think that the Bible is just supposed to be a book that affirms you. You look into it and it just tells you that you're the most beautiful of all. That you're wonderful. That you're great. That you're this and you're that. That doesn't happen to me a lot when I read the Bible. When I read the Bible, I, 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 I do a lot of, ooh, ah, mm, amen? 
Well, because the Bible is our critic. The Bible is a critic. It is a discerner. And I think that's a very interesting. And we're going to get to some more words here that are, that are interesting in verse 13. And no creature is hidden from its sight, his sight, and all are naked and exposed to the eyes of to him who we must give account. Ultimately, no one can hide from the Word of God. You remember when, when the Bible talks about Jesus coming back? In the book of Revelation, toward the end of the book, um, chapter 19, it talks about Him coming back and it, it explains this beautiful uh, picture of this conquering Christ coming back to the earth to, to gather up those who belong to Him and to, and to pour out judgment on those who are evil. It talks about how there's, it's written on Him, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it says His name is the Word of God. The Word of God. So even this judgment that comes upon the earth at the end, it is the Word of God. No one can hide from it. It exposes everyone. And what does it do to us when, when we preach it, when we teach it, when we read it? Well, it exposes us to God. It says the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. We have to give account to God and the Word of God exposes us to God. I want us to look at this word exposed here for a minute because it's an important word here. The, 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 the root word refers to the exposing of the neck. In the Greek, that word, it, it refers to the exposing of the neck. And there was a couple of ways that it was used. And both of these ways can help us to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Number one, it was a word that was used in wrestling. It was used in wrestling, which was very popular in, in the Greek culture. And... Um, when a wrestler would defeat an enemy, they would oftentimes be surrounded by a crowd where there was a coliseum or something uh, similar to a coliseum. And what they would do is when they defeated their enemy, they would grab them by the, their hair and they would pull back their head. And, and they would expose the face of that person to the watching crowd. So imagine this man has out-wrestled this other man and he stands beside him and he grabs him by the hair and he pulls back his head. This was the posture of victory. And so you can put, get that in your mind. There's an exposing there of what? Of, of the neck. An exposing of the neck, which is a very vital part of, of, of the human body. But the bottom line is the defeated enemy was forced to look up. He was forced to look up. He was exposed. But then there was another way that this Greek word was used as well. Um, it was used in the priesthood. And it's actually pretty similar to the way it was used with the wrestler. Because it was used in the priesthood to describe the act of a priest when the priest would tilt back the head of a sacrificial lamb before its throat was cut. So again, imagine that the lamb's head is tilted back, it's exposed... The throat is cut, the sacrifice is made, sins are atoned for. Either way, whichever way the writer was trying to use that Greek word, one of those two ways, it doesn't matter. Either way, both are scary, aren't they? Both are very scary. And he's wanting to paint a scary picture because he's wanting to shock them and say, hey, you better understand that ultimately one day you're going to be exposed to God. And when you are, it's important that you're saved. You see, the Word of God forces us to look at the God who's going to save us. 
And we can't win in the contest against God, y'all. We, we can't out-wrestle Him. Remember Jacob tried to out-wrestle Him, and he thought he had Him, and he just touched Him, remember, and he's, it was over. You, you can't out-wrestle God. But what you can do is this. You can, an, you can enter into rest with God. You can enter into rest with God. And that's what the writer has been urging his hearers to do in this whole section. Enter into the rest of God because one day you will be exposed before God. And it's so important on that day when the Word of God judges you that you have entered into the rest of God. Now if we want to be saved, what must we do? We must look to the Word of God. We must look to the Word of God. And what will the Word of God do? The Word of God, it's going to show us who we really are. And it's going to show us what Jesus has done. And it's going to show us what we need to do. And when we see who we really are, and we see what Christ has done, the very natural thing for us to do would be come to Christ and be saved. I think it's such an interesting thing that the writer here, who's writing to a group of Hebrew Christians, is so concerned about their salvation. You can see it, can't you? He knows that there are a lot of those who just don't really get it. And he knows this. I don't want to preach future sermons here, but you'll see it in the future. And, and he knows this because a lot of them are going back into the world. They're leaving the church. And so his hope and his heart is, because he sees them and what he thinks about is that wilderness generation. These folks are just like the wilderness, wilderness people that came out of Egypt. And it looked like they were going to make it to the promised land, but they didn't make it to the promised land. And he said, these are people who look like they're saved and they look like they're going to heaven, but I'm afraid a bunch of them aren't going to make it to heaven. Just like a bunch of those people didn't make it to the promised land. And so his heart is beating for these people. He's saying, make sure you're saved. Make sure you know Christ. Make sure you have entered into the rest of God. Because that rest is the only thing that is any good about eternity. Because the other option is not rest at all. Amen? Alright, so we finish that section uh, tonight and we'll pick up on Sunday night um, with, verse, with verse 14.